Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week we started a, a series, we're going to work our way through the book of Revelation, and uh, we won't hit absolutely every single verse or every phrase or every word. I want to hit main themes. There will definitely be, the way the book of Revelation works, there will definitely be messages where I cover a, a whole chapter at once. Um, but uh, at the beginning, it's, it's pretty dense in chapter one with some key themes and foundational stuff I want to I get through that set up the rest of the book. And so last week I was in chapter one. I'm going to be there again. We talked about verses one to three last week. And this week I'm going to talk about verses four through eight. All right. And this message is brought to you, by the way, by the Old Testament, uh, as is the entire series uh, of Revelation, it is, it is, and you're going to see this today just a little bit. We can't even touch on nearly all of it. But Revelation is saturated in the Old Testament. It is just saturated, saturated, saturated in the Old Testament. In fact, there's different counts of how many references to the Old Testament are in the book of Revelation. But it's over 500, and that's really amazing when you realize there's only 404 verses. Okay. Literally, there's layers, and you'll see in the second part of this message, uh, there are pa- there's, a, there's a verse. We're going to look at one verse, and in that one verse, you've got layers of different key Old Testament passages all layered into that one verse, okay? And so uh, that's what we're going to look at. And so verses 4 through 8, and really all through this book of Revelation, the key thing is uh, you say, what's practical about the book of Revelation? Well, there's a few practical things, but I'll tell you one of the main things is we're supposed to fall in love with Jesus, And I hope that we're going to fall in love with Jesus, number one, and also that something will be stirred in your heart for the Word of God. It really is exciting when we begin to dig into it in the book of Revelation. There's so much meat here. But let me read you verses 4 through 8, and we'll pray again, and and then we'll start working our way through. There's two main things I want to get through today. But anyway, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So he's bringing greetings, okay? And who's he bringing greetings from? Grace to you and peace from... Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Amen just means so be it. That's that's the whole prayer of Revelation. Revelation teaches us to pray, please come, Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A and the Z. That was the Greek alphabet is, is bookended by the Alpha and the Omega. So in English, he would have said, I am the A and I am the Z, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in us a love for Jesus as we go through this book of Revelation. I pray that you would also stir up in us a hunger for your word. This book, more than any other book of the Bible, is saturated in other scriptures. I pray that those scriptures would come alive to us and that we would have a desire to go home and meditate on your word and search it out. And Lord Jesus, that we would leave this place today with a Holy Spirit fire, a desire to pray more, to study more, to witness more, and to live for you more. In Jesus' name we pray. And again, all God's people said, 
Amen. So, two parts of this message. First of all, let's look at this greeting last week in verses 1 through 3. John is introducing himself. Now he's bringing greetings from him who is and who was and who is to come. Obviously, this is talking about God. The interesting thing, though, is that uh, John doesn't say, I mean, he could just say grace to you and peace from God. Move on to the next verse. But he doesn't do that, okay? He doesn't say grace, and, grace to you and peace from God. He says grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Well, goodness knows who all, you know, all the different reasons that there could be. But first of all, the thing you have to understand is this is a personal greeting from God. So John doesn't want to just say greetings from God because God isn't God's name. Isn't that true? God isn't God's name. God is a descriptive of the class of being that God is in, which is the one who created everything is God. That's not his name. Just like uh, I am a man. Okay, that's not my name. My name is Chris. So if someone brought, you know, if my wife brought greetings to you and said, greetings from man, uh, you would be kind of like, that's a bit odd. Which man? Okay. Now, of course, there's only one God, so that one's easier to, uh, to, to put down, right? But, but there's all kinds of things. I'm also a dad, but dad isn't my name. Chris is my name. And in the same way, God, John doesn't bring a general greeting. Hey, greetings from God. God actually wants to introduce himself to us and speak to us personally in this book. So you say, okay, well, then why not just say, you know, grace and peace to you from, I, I mean, Yahweh, I guess, would be the name in the, in the Old Testament, the divine name. Well, the interesting thing is right here in this introduction, we see the Trinity. God is more somehow than just one person. And so we have two ands. We have him who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits and Jesus Christ. The Trinity all wants to say grace to you and peace to the churches. This is a very personal greeting from a God that goes far beyond anything we can comprehend. So let's look at these titles a little bit closer. First of all, the one who is and who was and who is to come. This, by the way, is a direct link to the divine name Yahweh. Okay, it's a direct uh, link. Yahweh, again, God is not God's name. It's just a title for the class of being that he is. He's God. But Yahweh, when Moses, when, uh, when God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 14, he doesn't introduce himself as God. He introduces himself as Yahweh. Now, in Hebrew, Yahweh simply means I am. So let's, let's go and look at that. Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 14. And uh, God said, now don't worry about the ha on there for just a second. Just, just forget about that in the brackets. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Okay? And in Hebrew, I am is just said Yahweh. That's God's name. I am. The one who exists. What, a, what, a, what, a, what an epic name, hey? Everything else in the universe that exists has to come from something else. I come from my mother. Uh, you know, and she comes from someone. A tree comes from a, a seed. A uh, car comes from a car manufacturing plant. Uh, everything that exists has to come. The universe has to come from something because you can't have something pop out of, out of nothing. Okay? So everything that exists in the universe comes from something else except 
for God, who is just the great I am, the only one who has no cause, he just has always been, I am. So he introduces himself to Moses and says, my name is I am. And he, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, because they're going to ask. Because back in those days, everything was a God. If it moved, it was a God. They had no scientific understanding of the world. That's why all the peoples, you know, you read through the Old Testament, you go, why do they keep, uh, why do the people of Israel keep wanting to worship idols? How easy, how hard can it be? Just don't worship the sun. It's not a, it's not a living being. But remember, they have no concept of science. They have no concept of science. If I see something move across the sky, it must be alive. And that's why all the peoples of the ancient world, they worship the sun, they worship the moon, they worship the trees, they worship the, the, the ocean, they worship all kinds of things because they thought they were alive. That was the only way they knew to explain how things happened. And so Moses knows that the people of Israel are going to say, well, which God sent you? It, like in our days, we wouldn't ask that question. But in those days, it's very important. Well, which God sent you? Is it that God? Is it that God? Is it the ocean God? Is it the sun God? Is it the Egyptian God? Is it the Babylonian God? And so God has to tell him something, not just God. He has to give a name. So he says to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The great I am that has no cause. And in Hebrew, I am is just Yahweh. So God's name, so sacred. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was such a sacred name, the Jews didn't want to write it unless they were, you know, copying out scripture, and then they had all kinds of things they would do before they would write the name. They didn't want to say it. It was so precious. They would say God, but to say Yahweh, that was his name. Okay, very, very precious. That was his name, Yahweh. Now, the thing is, and here's just a little bit of education for you. Um, in the New Testament, the interesting thing is, just like, you know how we use translations today. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we read out of our English Bibles, most of us, so when we read in Hebrew 3, 4, or Exodus 3.14, we don't read Yahweh, we read I am, because Yahweh in English is I am. In the same way, something that many Christians don't understand today is the New Testament writers mostly did not read out of the Hebrew Bible, the, or the original Hebrew. The New Testament writers, just like you and me, were working off of a translation because they spoke Greek in most cases better than they spoke Hebrew. And so 90%, actually 90, somewhere around 90% of the Old Testament quotes that are in the New Testament do not come from the original Hebrew. They come from a Greek translation of the Hebrew, which was called the Septuagint, okay? So the Septuagint, kind of like I have an ESV and some of you have an NIV uh, and some of you have a KJV and all the da 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 vs right? Lots of them. Uh, the New Testament writers, their version of the Old Testament was, was a Greek translation called the Septuagint, okay? So now the interesting thing is, if you read uh, Exodus 3, verse 14, the Yahweh passage, in the Greek Septuagint, this is what it says. It says, God said to Moses, I am, and in Greek, I am is not Yahweh. Yahweh is a Hebrew word. In the, in the Greek, the word there is ha-on. Now if you go back to Revelation, which is written in Greek, when John is introducing, or God is sending a greeting through John, it's grace and peace, grace to you and peace from ha-on. It's, it's a direct tie back to Exodus 3.14. This means what's happening here in this greeting is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh himself, under his divine name. By the way, we sang a song before, the name that is above every other name. Do you know what any Jew in the first century, you would say, what is the name above any other name or every other name? The name is Yahweh. And in Philippians, 
What does Paul do? He connects Jesus and he says, now Jesus has been given the name above every other name. In other words, he is equating Jesus with Yahweh. But right here at the beginning of Revelation, we get a greeting from God himself, and it's a greeting from Yahweh. It's a greeting from Ha'on, the one who is, who has always existed. And then John expands on the name to make it even more magnificent, the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's just eternally existent without beginning or end. The God of the Old Testament, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who created the entire universe in Genesis chapter 1, the God who brought those terrible plagues on Egypt, who made the stand still in Joshua, that God of the Old Testament is saying to the churches today, grace to you and peace from himself personally. But now the interesting thing is, and this is where for a first century Jew, this would get like, oh my goodness. Because you wouldn't put anyone else in this. If you're going to put the, the name of God and say grace to you and peace from Yahweh, Nobody else goes in that sentence because nobody else is, is on the same level as Yahweh. But John, as a Holy Spirit-inspired first-century Christian, adds two, more, adds two more figures to this thing. He doesn't stop at Yahweh. Like, you, don't, you don't put an angel or a human being in the same line with Yahweh. So greetings from Yahweh, good enough. But then we have greetings from Yahweh, who is, who, and who was, and who is to come, and from these seven spirits. What in the world is with that? We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's go to the easier one. And from Jesus Christ. What in the world? Okay? But this is the job of all the New Testament writers. This is what they're so excited about. And they are constantly, throughout their writings, putting Jesus and the Old Testament God, Yahweh, together. Constantly. That somehow... Yahweh is Jesus, and Jesus is Yahweh. Somehow Jesus is God, and God is Yahweh. And yet, they're separate, separate enough that they both have to say hi. So the one who is, it's, it's not enough to just say hi from the one. So somehow Yahweh is Jesus, and Jesus is Yahweh. And yet both of them separately have to say the one who is and who was and who is to come. He says grace to you and peace. And Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, on earth, he also says grace to you and peace. This is, this is, we're seeing the Trinity at work. Somehow God is three persons in one. And you say, uh, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> and anybody who tells you they know doesn't know what they're talking about. We won't know till heaven, and maybe even then our puny human minds will never be able to grasp it. But the thing you have to understand is God, God is so far beyond. In fact, by very definition, doesn't he have to be beyond anything we can comprehend? If he's infinite and we're finite, how can the finite grasp the infinite? So, of course, John doesn't just say, hey, hello from God. He brings a personal greeting, and just in the greeting, we go, whoa, we can't get our heads around this. The eternally existent one, Jesus. And then, of course, we have this middle one where it's like, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this really starts to mess you up because it's like, I thought it was three in one, but really we have one and one and seven, so that's a nine in one. Uh, you know, what on earth is going on here? Now, commentators disagree about this, but I'm going to give you an interpretive key that will help you in the rest of the book of Revelation. 
So commentators sometimes disagree about that. Okay, who are these seven spirits? They must be, you know, seven really important angels, and there's some speculation about that. Um, but I'll tell you what I firmly believe and feel confident about and in agreement with a number of, of commentators as well, is that these seven spirits have to be the Holy Spirit. And the reason I believe that so firmly, and I'm going to show you an Old Testament, I'm going to show you a couple other passages in an Old Testament passage, which I think really draws it together and confirms it, but how could you have in a greeting a Yahweh and Jesus sandwich and in the middle have seven angels? No. You don't fit anything less than God into a greeting between Yahweh and Jesus Christ. That would be blasphemy, borderline, okay? Not that people who, who have different, you know, who differ with us are blasphemous, not at all. But just to me, I just can't see how the Apostle John would put anything but God in between God and God. So the seven spirits of God must somehow be the Holy Spirit. Now this is going to be, and I'm going to show you now, I'm going to confirm this in a couple places, but this will help you because it, the seven spirits of God comes up in a few different places of Revelation. Whenever you see the seven spirits of God as you're reading through Revelation as we go through this series, that just means the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 says this, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him who has, and the words of him is Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God. That's just the Holy Spirit. By the way, that absolutely just agrees with, with New Testament theology. I mean, Luke and the book of Acts are huge on Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's the Trinity working together, right? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, and the angel, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him, that's Jesus who has the Holy Spirit and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. If we go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, from the throne, John seeing a, a picture of the throne here, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So somehow the Holy Spirit is like seven torches of fire and, and always in the throne before the throne of God. It's very interesting and we can't understand it all. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, okay? But now I want to show you, I said before that this message is brought to you by the Old Testament. I want to show you, we're going to start to go into the Old Testament a little bit. And I want to show you something in the Old Testament that kind of brings us together. The Holy Spirit is not just seven different spirits. He's somehow got a sevenness, but he's one spirit. If we go back to Exodus chapter 25, in uh, Exodus chapter 25, God gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, okay? Now, do you all, you all remember what the tabernacle was? Remember when Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt? God says, I want to live, I want to live with my people. I'm going to live with you. At, now you come out of Egypt, I'm going to live among you. And so they were moving around, and so they couldn't build a temple yet. And that would be in the future. They would build a, a temple in one place, but in the meantime, while they were wandering, God says, I'm going to live in a tent with you. And so that tent was tabernacle. A tabernacle just means tent of meeting. And so in Exodus 25, God gives Moses instructions for this tabernacle. So first of all, they had to build a fence, a rectangular fence out of fabric that could be folded up and moved very easily. But you had to have a fence to keep people from getting too close to the glory of God. And then within that rectangular fence, they had 
various furnishings, worship utensils, that sort of thing. And then, and then there was the tent. That was the tabernacle itself. And there was two compartments. There was the front compartment, and there was some important furniture in there. And then there was an inner compartment, a cube, which was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody could go into the Ark of the Co- or into the Holy of Holies at any point except once a year, one man, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. Anyone else who would go in at any other time would be killed by the glory of God. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is, is just, and, is, is, and again, now you're going to start to see, there's, there's, you'll see, start to see the parallels in just a moment, because the tabernacle was meant to be a copy of something in heaven. But what's interesting is, right in front of the Holy of Holies, God gave Moses instructions for a very special lamp that was to be kept burning at all times. Let's read the instructions about that lamp here. Exodus 25, just a couple of verses here. Verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lamp side stem out of the other side. You shall make seven lamps. Now, okay, so you've got a, a lamp stand, and then you've got three arms here. So one, two, three. You've got three arms here, and then that gives you seven lamps total because you also have the lamp on the stand. So you've got seven lamps across. Now, already, right now, you're starting to see, oh, wait a minute. Okay, this has some tie-ins to what John is seeing in heaven uh, in Revelation. So it says, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Now, I'll just show you a picture. Obviously, this is a, of, of what this would have looked like, and obviously, this is the famous menorah, which has come to be kind of a symbol of the Jewish people, okay? But out in front of this holy of holies, you would have always had this lamp with seven torches or lights always lit in front of the Holy of Holies, okay? Now, you can see in this, first of all, Moses, when he's making this in the Israelites, they have no idea. Maybe they have some idea. I don't know how much of an idea they knew of what they were doing, but they certainly didn't know all of it. They didn't know what all of this stuff stood for, okay? They didn't know what they were making. They just knew God said, make it exactly this way and, and don't change anything. Do it exactly like this, okay? But they don't realize the, book of he- the writer of the book of Hebrews comes along in the New Testament and he says, all of this stuff was made that way because it's a copy of the real tabernacle, the throne room of God. I'll just show you this quickly in Hebrews chapter 8. And the writer of Hebrews says this, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, that's Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So his whole point there, the writer of Hebrews is saying, the tent in Exodus, the tabernacle tent, was not the true tent. That was the copy. It was a copy of something real in heaven. So the stuff that's in the tabernacle in Exodus and those books, that is shadows and copies of something real in heaven. Let's keep reading. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, so the writer of Hebrews is saying everything here in the earthly tabernacle was a copy and shadow of real things in heaven. Now we fast forward to Revelation 
And John is shown a vision of heaven. And what does he see? He sees something like this menorah. This, this, this torches here was representing the Holy Spirit. Now, is the Holy Spirit seven different, different spirits? No, he's one spirit. There's one lamp. There's one lamp there, but somehow seven torches always burning before God. There's, there's something to this. You say, what, what is it? What are we supposed to take away from this? First of all, God, there is a lot of mystery to God. But the Holy Spirit is God every bit as much as Yahweh and Jesus. And sometimes he kind of gets, there's actually people, and they, they kind of argue, you know, there's, maybe the Trinity is more like, like two. It's Jesus and, and, and Yahweh, and, and really, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is really a member of the Trinity. He's a separate entity within this one God. And he's like a burning torch, burning torches before the Lord in his throne room. It's it's really a lot beyond us, but he is a very special person in the Trinity, worthy of honor and worship. And we need him uh, desperately and, and to be in awe of him. But anyway, I want to go to the second thing. That's the Trinity in this greeting. Now I want to go to the second thing, which uh, we just touched on at the end of last week's message. And that is this verse 7 in Revelation 1, verse 7. And this is so important to the whole book of Revelation because... In this verse, we have the hope of revelation. Okay, and it says this, Behold, he, that's Jesus, is coming with the clouds. This is part of the introduction. Greetings to you from Yahweh and from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus. And then who is this Jesus? He's got a bunch of things. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's a faithful witness. And he's the one who's going to do this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Now, this is, this is who Jesus is. He is the one who is going to come in the clouds, and all the people of the earth are going to see him, and all of them are going to wail and mourn when they see him, okay? And this, by the way, is the backdrop now for the entire book of Revelation. If you want to find any kind of earthly hope in the book of Revelation that things are going to get better because of people, you will find it in zero places in the book of Revelation, the hope of the book of Revelation is not that we as human beings are ever going to get our act together or make things good. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. But the backdrop to this whole book where things are going downhill and in a hurry, the backdrop is Jesus is the one who's going to come on the clouds and set up his kingdom on earth. Okay? Now, even this line, he's coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, is saturated in Old Testament. And I, and I could look at a number of different passages. I want to look at two big ones, though, because they're key to the rest of the book of Revelation. He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, is, is saturated in two and pointing back and founded on two primary passages, important passages in the Old Testament. One is Daniel chapter 7, and the other is Zechariah chapter 12. And so much in Revelation depends on these passages, so let's go back and look at them here in, uh, in this message starting with Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, is having a similar experience to John. Just like John in Revelation is getting a vision of heaven, Daniel, hundreds of years before, uh, had an experience where God showed him uh, heaven. And so Daniel looks, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. By the way, bar none, one of my favorite names for God in the Bible. Amen? Is that not a great, like, can't you just hear the thunder rumble? The Ancient of Days takes his seat. 
He's not a couple hundred years old or a couple of thousand. Millions and billions and trillions don't even begin to scratch the surface. He's not afraid of a billion years. He's not afraid of a trillion years. He merely blinks at those things. He is the ancient of days. And Daniel sees the ancient of days take his seat on a fiery throne. And in these next couple of verses, there is so much imagery in here that is in the book of Revelation. But anyway, his clothes, this ancient of days, his clothes, clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books. We're not talking about paperback books here. The books. The books. Okay, we've got books here, the books. And this is just like Revelation 20, right? The great white throne judgment, where God opens up the books and all of our deeds are written in the books. So Daniel gets this vision of the throne room of God in the Ancient of Days, sits down and opens the books. Okay? And now it's very interesting. We're going to skip ahead just a couple of verses here to verse 13. Now, an interesting character is going to come on the scene. We've got the Ancient of Days on his throne, and the books are opened. And now a very interesting character appears. I saw in the night visions. This is all part of that same vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now, remember, Revelation 1, right? Who's coming on the clouds of heaven? Well, look in Daniel here, Daniel verse, you know, 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, that's Bible talk. One like a son of man just means he, he looked like a man. Okay, one like a son of man was like a, a man. I saw a man, or at least he looked like a man. Obviously, he's more than just a man because he's coming with the clouds, but he looks just like a, a man. So I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So Daniel must be wondering at this point, okay, ancient of days I get. I'm in awe of the ancient of days, but who's this on the clouds like a son of man? And now the Ancient of Days, next verse, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, at this point already, Daniel must be going, okay, this one, like a Son of Man, can't just be a regular guy. Because a regular guy doesn't stand before the Ancient of Days and be given glory and dominion. Only God gets glory and dominion. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is a very interesting passage because remember, in the Old Testament, they don't have, like in the New Testament, now we all just grow up with the Trinity. God is three in one, and we kind of take that for granted. Uh, that's probably not a good thing. We just kind of, oh, the Trinity, we don't think about it that much. But you have to remember, the Trinity was, that was radical. The Old Testament, they didn't have a doctrine of the Trinity and yet, it was this passage, Daniel 7 and a couple of others, that really made the Old Testament uh, Israelites think. And already by Jesus' time, they've had a lot of debate about Daniel 7, and they're not sure what Daniel 7 is all about, but they've come to the conclusion that whoever this Son of Man character is, he's somehow equal with God. So they don't have a developed idea of the Trinity, three in one, but they do have this idea that there's more going on than they realize there's the Ancient of Days, and there's this Son of Man figure who is somehow God as well. In fact, this is how Jesus gets himself crucified. In Mark chapter 14, they're looking for a reason to put him on the cross. 
They're trying to come up with reason after reason after reason. And finally, Jesus is, is you know, I don't want to make a trite, but he's, he's bored with the process, and now it's time to, to be crucified. So you know how he gets himself crucified? He just quotes himself as being this figure in Daniel chapter 7. And right at that point, they go, oh, we can crucify him now because they knew this Son of Man character had to be somehow God. I'll just show you this because I just think when you understand some of these foundational passages like Daniel 7, so much of the Bible comes alive. Mark chapter 14, this is Jesus being questioned by the high priest the night before his death. And he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And now Jesus said, look at this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's saying, Daniel saw me. That was me in Daniel 7. That's who Daniel saw. Okay? He's putting himself back in Daniel 7. Okay? And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And right there, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need you have heard this blasphemy, all right? And now John comes along in Revelation. And he says, what we're going to see in the future is Daniel 7 coming true. Except now we know who that Son of Man is. It's Jesus. And he is the one who receives dominion and glory from the Ancient of Days himself. And he is going to come on the clouds. And that's our hope. He's going to set up his kingdom. And all peoples and languages and nations will all serve him forever and ever and ever. Daniel 7 is going to come true in the future. And Jesus is the one who will come on the clouds. But then, of course, John doesn't stop there. He just layers in the same sentence. He takes Daniel 7, but Daniel 7 isn't enough. And he takes Zechariah 12, and he puts Zechariah 12 in there as well. And that's where we're going to finish this message. Let's go, to, let's go back to Revelation 1, verse 7 again, just briefly. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's Daniel 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And again, this is directly out of Zechariah 12. So let's go and look at Zechariah chapter 12, because this will also give us a foundation for understanding Revelation. Zechariah 12, starting in verse 1, and the interesting thing is when you pull the Old Testament context, when John refers back to the Old Testament, when you pull it out, you can see so much there of what John is, is seeing in Revelation. But Zechariah 12, verse 1, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So I'll just stop there for just a moment. This is what all of the Old Testament prophets prophesied ahead to a day at the end. And they called it the day of the Lord. But they all prophesied ahead to a day in the future, the day of the Lord, when the nations would gather against Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. Okay? And Zechariah is writing a few hundred years before Jesus, before John, before Revelation. He's one of the last of a long line of these prophets who all saw ahead to a day, that God showed them a day. There will be a day when the nations will gather against Jerusalem, okay? And so we keep reading. I'll skip ahead just a few verses because it's very important what happens next. Verse 8, on that day, so this day that's coming in the future, all the Old Testament prophets predicted, there's a day when the nations will gather. What happens next? Verse 8, on that day, the day of the Lord, the Lord, and the word there in Hebrew is Yahweh. Wherever you see it capitalized in your Bibles, that's always the name. It's not just the title Lord, it's the name Yahweh, his divine name. On that day, Yahweh 
We will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God and the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, before we go to the next verse, which is the tie-in to Revelation, this is a really important point that is actually foundational for how we understand Revelation. Okay? So two things I want to ask you. First of all, when Yahweh returns to earth, so the nations, this is when he's going to return. The nations are going to gather against Jerusalem. When Yahweh returns to earth, who is he protecting? Who is he protecting? Jerusalem. Okay? Who is he protecting? Jerusalem. Who is he fighting against? The nations. Okay? Now this is really important. You say, what does that have to do with the book of Revelation? You remember last week I, uh, I talked about four different interpretive methods, kind of main ways that people interpret Revelation. One of them I talked about, and you don't have to remember all those four ways. One of them I talked about was what's called preterism, which is an increasingly popular way of interpreting uh, the book of Revelation in Christian circles, especially in a lot of scholarly circles. Preterism, you don't have to remember what that word means, but preterism is just this idea that all of the prophecies of Revelation already came true. They're not in the future. They already came true during John's lifetime, okay? Specifically, preterists say all the prophecies of Jesus returning on the clouds, like we see in Revelation 1 and like we see in Matthew 24, the, 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 the prophecies of Jesus returning on the clouds, preterists say that happened in 70 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. That happened when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And preterists say that that the predictions of Jesus coming on the cloud were symbolic of him coming in judgment to judge the Jewish people for rejecting him as Savior, okay? Now again, lots of intelligent people and wonderful Christians believe this. But now I want to tell you why I reject it and why I think it makes a, a completely wrong foundation for interpreting the book of Revelation. Here's why. In all of the Old Testament passages that clearly say Jesus is coming back, is he coming back to destroy Jerusalem, or is he coming back to protect it? Protect. That is over and over and over and over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament. If 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, if that was Jesus' return, then all of the Old Testament prophets not only got it wrong, they got it completely opposite, flipped wrong. And I just don't believe when God makes a promise and says, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, and he uses his personal name, when I, Yahweh, come back, I am going to defend Jerusalem. There is no way that his return, that return, can be construed as being a time when Jerusalem was crushed. And so that is one of a number of reasons why I believe very strongly that Jesus' return in the clouds is a physical return in the clouds that we will see, and he will actually defend Jerusalem because that's what the Old Testament prophets point to. And that's also what Revelation is ultimately pointing ahead to. But now, let's go to the, the very next verse, and now you're going to see a bit of Revelation 1 in here, all right? And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Let's put Revelation 1 up there at the same time, and you can see some of the, uh, the, the definite parallels there. Uh, notice that in both of these, so behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Just like in Zechariah 12, they will look on me. Even those who pierced him, 
Just like in Zechariah, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And all the tribes of the earth will wail, and in Zechariah it says they shall mourn. Now actually, both those words in John's Greek translation and in his Greek writing in Revelation 1, both those words, wail and mourn, is not two different words. It's the exact same Greek word, kopto. Both words could be translated in, in uh, English as mourn. Okay? So it's the exact same thing. All John is doing is he's taking Zechariah. Zechariah just saw Yahweh rescuing the nation of Israel. But John's expanding it, and he says, this is even bigger than Israel. All the tribes of the world, it's not just Israel that has to deal with who is Jesus. All the tribes of the world, every nation on earth, has to answer the question, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? That is not just a question for the Jews. That's a question for Brazilians, Africans, Chinese, Canadians, and every nation on the earth. John just expands on it and says, all the tribes of the world are going to see him, and they're going to mourn. And this is where the two prophecies just diverge, and this is where we'll end because this also is important for the book of Revelation. There's two different kinds of mourning that are going on here. Zechariah's mourning is a positive mourning. It's a mourning of repentance. That all the Jewish people who are alive when Jesus comes back in the clouds, the Jewish people who are alive are all going to mourn with repentance. They're going to go, we should have accepted you as our Messiah the first time. And they're going to give their lives to Jesus. We see this in the very next verse in Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day when Jesus returns, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In other words, all the Jews who are alive when Jesus comes back, they're going to repent, they're going to give their lives to Jesus, and they're all going to be saved. That doesn't mean every Jew from all of history is saved. Nobody's saved by their ethnicity. The Old Testament is, is, well, in the New Testament in a lot of ways too, but the Old Testament is a story of the Jewish people, and there's bad Jewish people and good Jewish people in there. There's, in history, there's going to be lots of Jewish people, like, just like any other national group, who will not be saved because they didn't accept Christ. You're not saved by your ethnicity, but the Old Testament prophets all pointed ahead to a day that that group of Jewish people who is still alive when Jesus comes back, that group of people will mourn in repentance and give their lives to him, and they will have their sins forgiven. Okay? The mourning in the book of Revelation is very different. See, Revelation, when Revela the book of Revelation talks about the nations, always it talks about the nations as being under the power of the evil one. There will be many people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language who will give their lives to Christ. But the nations as a whole and the governments in Revelation, Revelation is very pessimistic about that, that they, that they remain in rebellion against Jesus all along. I'll read you just one passage. I could read many, and then we'll close in prayer. Revelation says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is a huge theme in Revelation. In other words, if your hope is in government solutions, politics, or in the nations somehow getting better than they currently are, or that the nations would somehow become more friendly to Christianity than they're going to become, if that's your hope, that hope is not a scriptural hope. That certainly isn't a hope you'll find 
anywhere in the book of Revelation where the nations are not in repentance, they are in rebellion, and they will continue to do so, and things will get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back on the clouds. Okay? Now, I know some Christians don't like that message because they would like to be more optimistic. And I hear lots of Christians talking about how the problems in this world is we're just too pessimistic, we're not optimistic. That is not the problem with the world. Sure, we can all be more optimistic. I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person by nature. I like being optimistic. It's just a better way to live. But if you think that the world's problems are we're not positive enough, you're wrong. The world's problems are Satan is running the show with the nations and the people are following. And if your hope is that things are going to get better and better and better, they will not get better and better and better. They're going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Now, a lot of Christians don't like that because they think, well, you're just being fatalistic. What are you saying? We should all just pull back into our bunkers and eat our canned food and wait out till Jesus comes back. Well, I know what the talk is in the coffee shops, and I just want to confirm that right now. We do have a bunker here under the uh, stage. (laughs) It's it's only big enough for our top pastors here at church, and... uh, I'll be heading down there as soon as things get bad. Absolutely not. Okay? Anybody who wants to walk around on here between services and look, there's, it's not a bunker. But anyway, um, do we need to be involved in politics? Yes. Do we need to be salt and light? Yes. Do we need to go out there and, and adopt orphans and reach out and do missions? Look at, we just took up a Christmas offering because we're not giving up or holding back. And Christians need to become politicians in salt and light. I think Daniel is instructive. He was salt and light in a wicked empire. But he's instructive in more ways than one. First of all, he was salt and light. He didn't just become fatalistic and give up. And at the same time, what happened at the end? Babylon got crushed. So yes, we need to slow the forces of evil. We need to get involved We need to be Holy Spirit light. We need to be generous. We need to do ministry. We need to not give up. We need to not pull back and be fatalistic. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. But at the same time we do that, let's just keep our eyes open and realize our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. It's not going to come through voting in the right person here or there. Let's vote in the right people and have them slow down the forces of evil. Yes, but that's not our hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has received a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. And when he sets up his kingdom here, then and only then will things finally be right. And so I want you to just to close your head, or close your heads. <laughs> Stop thinking. Close your heads. Close your eyes, bow your heads. Let's, uh, let's just take a moment. What have you been putting your hope in these days? What are you looking forward to? Maybe you're going through some tough times right now and you feel like you're not going to make it. You don't know how you're going to get through it. You're mad at God. Why are you not answering my prayers? I want you to remember again how much he's done for you already. He has saved you from sin. He's saved you from an eternity in hell. And someday he's going to come back to earth and make everything right. In the meantime, look ahead. In the meantime, look ahead. Don't give up. Don't stop being salt and light. Don't stop being a Daniel where you are. Hold on because someday Jesus is coming back and he will reward you. That's our hope. The one who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits before his throne and Jesus Christ, faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, says to you today, grace and peace. 
He is with us. Thank you for being with us, Jesus. Lord, we look forward to your return. And again, Revelation does not teach us to pray that we'll have it easier here on earth. It teaches us to pray, come, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make things right. Give us strength in the meantime. In your powerful, precious name we pray. Amen.